While you're turning to 2 Peter, the third chapter, there will be a gospel saying here, June the 3rd. That's Friday, June the 3rd, the Evangelaires. That's the group that was here before, and we really enjoyed them. We're going to be here. That's Friday night. So we want you to plan on it. We want you by the word of mouth to tell everybody we're going to have a time in the Lord. June the 3rd, Friday night, 7 o'clock, Evangelaires. Also, Ren Lake Youth Camp, that senior camp, will begin June the 20th. So if you have youth from 13 up, you begin to uh, get them ready for youth camp. As far as we know now, uh, things are not really finalized yet, but as far as we know not now, I, uh, Dan will be preaching the camp. So we want you to come out and really help us out. Amen. Singing June the 3rd, that's not this next Friday, but that's the Friday after that. This next Friday, this coming Friday, we have something important too. We want to go out to the park and listen to Brother Mike Atkins and listen to Sister Debbie sing and tell everybody where she goes to church at. Amen. Is that all right? Anything wrong with that? Told you people when I first come here, go out and tell them you've got the best preacher in Mount Vernon. Didn't ask you to lie too much, you know, just kind of stretch it a little bit, and that'll get people at least wondering, you know. They'll come out once anyway. They may never come out anymore, but at least they'll come out once. Second Peter, the third chapter. I'm going to need to read the whole chapter. Is that all right? I'm going to read it anyway. There's a lot of it in there, but it's hard to really cut off or know exactly what scriptures to pick out for tonight. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by the way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished but the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men but beloved be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be, all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent, that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, and also in all his epistles, 
speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Tonight, I want to talk to you about the second coming of the Lord. The second coming of the Lord. You'll need to pray for me tonight a little bit. Don't feel sorry for me. Just pray for me. Whisper prayer, but listen all at the same time. My throat's kind of cutting up a little bit on me. But we're going to make it all right. The second coming of the Lord. I... Uh, came from the church sometime last week, I believe it was, after studying and praying and delving into some scriptures that we'll not go into now, I came home and turned on the television set, and as I did, I turned it on in time to see a minister that was going to give us a very simple way of understanding the things that were going to come to pass before Jesus come. And he had charts hanging every direction. <laughs> and he had little figurines running every different direction. He had all types of beasts with almost everything else <laughs> imaginable on there. And he was going to give us a 30-minute one lesson in how to unravel the mysteries of our day and understand the signs of the time until when Jesus is coming. It was his intention to end the confusion of everyone. But by the time he got through, and I'm not really as dumb as I look, I was more, con more confused when he got through than I was when he began because I didn't understand one thing that he had to say. And the farther he went, the more contradictory he got with himself. And I sat back and just breathed a sigh because I don't like to get down upon those who are trying their best and I'm sure that he had the best motives in mind. But I just breathed a sigh and asked God, God, there must be something different than this that you had in mind when you spoke to your prophets and apostles and almost in every book that is written, they mentioned the second coming of Christ. But you must have had in mind more than this. You must have had something else, and if it would please you, Lord, I would like for you to some way speak to me that I might be able to unravel the mysteries for myself and understand and understanding then be able to share it with others and God began to speak to me in a way and in a vein that I had never really thought in I want to share that with you tonight if you will just stay with me I promise to have you out by midnight anyway uh, choir practice right after midnight you get in <laughs> you'll get in home anyway two or three o'clock you, you know you time to get up, Brother Lord, we'll get you in time to go to work if that's all right. But he began to speak to my mind and what I began to get out of it as I picked up the Bible that the second coming of the Lord and the proclamation of the second coming of the Lord has been lost in a maze of prophetic utterances and interpretations. And I thought this it has to be rediscovered and it has to be returned to its rightful place as a cardinal tenet of faith or in other words uh, an essential part of the principles of the belief of the church Jesus 
never spoke concerning it as an issue to stand by itself. The Apostle Paul never wrote concerning it as an issue to be expounded and set aside by itself. And neither did Peter or any of the other writers that we read after. And man has taken the second coming and every place you look, every place you look, somebody has got a new revelation. You see charts on almost everything and almost everybody disagrees. And while they're disagreeing agreeably, the church world is swimming in a maze of anxieties and uh, confusion. I'm not sure that I can unravel any of the confusion. And I'm sure whenever I come directly to the point, perhaps you're going to be disappointed at my presentation of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's no intention of mine to put my ideas and my opinions and force them on you at all. But as I looked at that, I thought, God, they're taking this, which evidently is a part of the belief of the church, a cardinal part of it, an essential part of it, perhaps one of the main points of it, but they've taken it out and they've sent it over here by itself and they've majored on that. And they've done the same thing with healing. I have nothing against healing. I have experienced it. I know it's a reality. But they've taken healing out, set it over here by itself. And it wasn't made to set by itself. It's an integral part of the faith that the church needs to grasp. But it's not made to stand alone. Neither is prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to come to the realization that the second coming is not as much prophecy or prediction as it is a promise. Now you can take a weatherman and he can predict the weather, but he can't promise you that it's going to be that way. Amen? And an individual can take the Bible and almost make it say what he wants us to say, and he can prophesy some things, but he can't promise you that that's the way it's going to be. But when we take God's Word not as a prophecy and not as a prediction but as a promise that he is coming again and set it in his rightful place and let it be an integral part of his plan then we have it where it belongs and mankind then can begin to see why he originated it and why he spoke about it his second coming in almost every portion of the bible that writers have written in 1844, however, Miller prophesied and set a date for the coming of the Lord, second coming. It hit the headlines. You read about it sometimes as uh, one of the greatest catastrophes that the church has ever underwent. Did more to undermine the faith of individuals that look for the second coming of the Lord than almost any incident that's happened since. But Christ didn't come. But it did, it did set the stage for the Baha'i faith. And it originated from there. Because this young man was so caught up in this, and he so believed that Christ was going to come, that he couldn't take no for an answer when he didn't appear. And so he began a belief that he did come, but he came secretly. And later he found an individual that said he came that day and he was the Messiah and the promised one. So you see, we have the emergence of a false cult and a faith because somebody, right or wrong, whether he was honest-hearted or whether he was just a charlatan trying to attract attention, I'm not here to say. But because he missed the boat, because he lifted out prophecies and said them by themselves, and dealt on that and nothing else. Let me tell you, friend, I think they're a part of it. But I think if we'd major a little bit more on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Ghost of God, we would be well, well above everybody else. Now last year, or maybe it was year before last, I don't remember, a small band in Evansville, Indiana, canceled their plans for the future. Quit their jobs. It was in the Evansville paper. They quit their jobs. 
told people the Lord was coming, uh, set before them what their pastor had preferably, they said, uh, considered and took the dates and some of the things and put it all together. And they went in, quit their jobs, and waited prayerfully for the parousia, or the coming of the Lord, and it never came. There again did harm to the gospel of the second coming of the Lord. And when I looked over those, I thought there's really no wonder that Peter prophesied that people would be saying, where's the promise of his coming? Now, if he was to say, where is the prophecy or the prediction of his coming, I couldn't say too much. I have my own ideas and opinions. I'm not a date setter, and I won't set a date. But when they say, where is the promise of his coming, why then you can open the Bible almost in any passage, and in there it promises us that he will come again. And friends, some way, somehow, it brought a deep, settled peace in me. And it's enough to know that He's coming. It's enough to know He promised He would. When Peter addressed the scorners who denied the promise of Christ's coming, I want you to notice carefully, he pointed to no signs. Although there are places in there that tell us and Matthew tells us, and I'm completely aware of those, and Daniel, of course, has some things to say, and Revelations has some things to say. But when most of them talk about the coming of the Lord, they don't point to any signs whatsoever. Peter only told them what would be happening when he did come. You say, well, what's the purpose then of inserting the second coming of the Lord? Now, notice Peter said nothing about Roman emperors. He said nothing about the destruction of Jerusalem. He said nothing about Gog or Magog. He only made a statement. And he hinged that statement upon the Word of God as he said, The day of the Lord will come. And I think all of us can be well assured. He pointed only to one thing as the assurance of the fulfillment and inspiration of his hope. And that's when he said, nevertheless, we. And I like you, Peter, for saying that. Nevertheless, in spite of everything, in spite of people saying, where's the promise of his coming? In spite of them saying, dates have been set and he's never come. Every generation has looked for him and he hasn't appeared yet. Peter says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Nevertheless, we have a right to hold to his promise. And he went ahead and said, that's what Paul taught too. I just read you. Uh, he said, now that's, that's Paul's eschatology too. That, that's the way he believes it too. And notice again the details of the Antichrist. The great tribulation. A thousand year reign of peace. The Middle East alignment for an Armageddon. Gog and Magog, though part of God's great plan, are not his emphasis. Not at all. His emphasis is on salvation. It's on repentance. It's on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And upon holy living and a consecrated life. Everywhere you look, it calls for that type of a life. God had a fivefold plan or purpose for proclaiming his second coming. Number one, he wanted to proclaim so he could instill righteousness in individuals. Not to scare the hair off of their head that he was going to come and how he was going to come and what was going to happen, but he simply wanted it mentioned that he was coming again to instill righteousness in us. All you have to do is read the parables, and they tell us that we should live so as to be accountable for a returning master. It didn't major so much on when he was returning as the fact that he was, and when he did, we were going to be accountable to him for what we had 
and what we did with what we had. You see, oft times, and I'm going to say it again, oft times the second coming is lifted out and pointed at and man is told that he's coming and he goes through all this maze of prophecy. And some way or somehow the type of individual we ought to be and what it takes to be that is missing. About all we know is he's coming and these are the signs of it. But who's he coming for? What manner of man ought we to be in all holy conversation? How should we live? I think at first hit home and and I'm by no means one of the greatest teachers in the world, but I sit under the feet of my father who was probably one of the greatest prophetic preachers in the state. They called him from different places to minister conferences on the prophetic future. And I watched him and I'm not saying anything detrimental about him. That was his ministry. And I watched him raise a church and minister to that church and I don't think anybody was a whit behind that church as far as knowing the signs that was going to come. But that church splintered and was torn to ribbons because they didn't know how to live the type of life they needed to live. Had never been told that there was a growth in God. Had never been told that God would demand righteousness out of them when they come. Had never been told that holy living was an integral part of being prepared for Him. And that God would require His vineyard at our hands. I'd like to go on record. I'm sure it's been told. And I'd like to go on record of telling Bethel Tabernacle tonight that God has placed us in this little corner of His vineyard. And what we do in this vineyard we will be held responsible for when he has, according to his promise, he does come. Talents are important. And it's up to individuals to utilize a natural talent or a spiritual one. And if we don't, we're failing to use the gospel plow in the vineyard of God. We're failing to prune the grape harbor, so to speak. And so in a sense, we will be held accountable to our returning master when he comes. I want you to not take my word for it. I want you to read the parables concerning the vineyard and how he left it and what he told us to do with it. And also notice the order as to how he established it. And notice the keeper of the vineyard as he felt his responsibility. As the owner of it comes and says, You, sir, you have some trees in your vineyard that's not bearing fruit. I want you to cut them down. Why have you allowed them to cumber the ground? In other words, they're beautiful and leafy and a beautiful tree. And I don't want something that leaves out its beautiful. I'm interested in fruit. And why have you allowed it to stay in the vineyard? Cut it down. But the keeper of the vineyard, if he's like he ought to be, he said, God, no. I don't want to cut it down. Just allow me some more years. And I'll dig around it. And I'll fertilize it. And I'll, with tender care, take care of it to see if I can get it to produce some fruit for you before I cut it down. You see, that's the heart of a vineyard keeper. That's the heart of a pastor. That's not willing as Christ and any should perish. And naturally there comes times in our life, mine as well as any others, whenever they say, well, I'm prone to believe the church would be better off without them. I'm the word. I'm going to cut them out. And the right attitude would be this, God. I don't know if I have done the best for them that I can or not. I don't know whether I have given them the attention that they need or not. Give me some more years, three years, 
Let me just dig around them. Now that you reveal this to me, and I see them, let me dig around them a little bit. Let me take the gospel and dig around them a little bit. And let me give them some fertilizer and see if I can make them produce some fruit for you so they can stay in the vineyard, so they can be here when you get ready to come, so that they can look up and be accountable to you. As many a pastor, friend, as many a pastor that's going to have the finger of God pointed in their face. An answer to a whole lot of things that they assumed that their lay members or parishers would answer for. Because love seemed to go out the window. They didn't seem to care. Get rid of these people, they say. Rid it of the troublemakers, so to speak. And God says different. God says do the best you can with everything you've got. And then if it doesn't happen... Use God's Word. Use God's Word. It, it'll do it. But when Peter urged his readers, who, as he said, look for such things, he urged them to be diligent. Why must you be diligent? That you may be found of Him in peace without spot or blameless. And in other words, he's saying, you have the promise that Jesus is coming again. And I want you to be diligent today. I want you to be spotless today. I want you to be blameless today so that whenever He does come, you will be standing before Him cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Hallelujah. In other words, live your life every day like He's coming the next minute. I don't believe I was ever so disturbed in my life as when some years ago I was relatively a young minister and I began to follow the line and leading of some of the things that would possibly be in view when Jesus was to come. I pointed out in a Bible study one night that before he came I felt that the temple had to be rebuilt. I never thought anything about it. But it wasn't long after that till I began to talk to a certain individual that was in the church about dedicating his life and getting ready to meet Jesus. His answer? Appearing tomorrow from the eastern skies, your life may end within the next minute and you need to be ready every day. You need to live your life like you don't have a tomorrow. You need to live your life like there's not another moment for you to get ready. You need to live your life. Peter said it. Be diligent so that when he comes according to his promise, whether it's for you or whether it's for everybody, that you'll be found without spot and blameless. And the second coming, therefore, was installed and instilled within the heart of those and they wrote it in the scriptures to instill some righteousness in our heart. Righteousness every day. Jesus wanted us to proclaim it to instill an urgency. This is the main reason I firmly believe and the main reason in the sense I have backed off from it that the apostle Paul about the apostles spoke very little about an external evidence of his fulfillment. Because if the world read the signs and they were right, they would have no sense of urgency about their life until they saw these things. And then they would begin to get urgent about their life. And friend, God wants you urgent today. He wants you to have urgency in you tonight. He wants you to work like there's not another time to get your family in. He wants you to pray like you'll never have another hour to pray. He wants an urgency in the church as he's never had it before. He wants an urgency in the heart that stirs us and drives us to our knees to make us pray for a sinner, a drunkard, a prostitute, or whatever. An urgency to get them saved today. Because there may not be a tomorrow for them. But I found as I watched and followed the signs, this has to be the man's end. 
I believe he was probably right in it. I think Iran has to be a part of Russia. And a few years ago, we'd have never suspected that it ever could be. And I think the alignment of the nation possibly is right. But friend, if we live our lives looking at the checkerboard square of the things getting together in the eastern countries, and more or less set back and say, well, I'm going to watch these signs. And then when they all gather together and we have just a few more years, then I'm really going to get into it. And when possibly by then, have a million souls go out in the eternity to spend eternity in hell that could have been reached had there been an urgency and a fire burning in our soul. And we really care. We really were concerned. Jesus' parable, again, he wrote a lot of parables about his coming. But he wrote one with a terrific impact as he spoke concerning the wise and the foolish virgins. And in that, in that he emphasized the need of being diligent. Because he said, for we don't know what hour that the bridegroom might come. Even though all of this was ready, an announcement was made, and they took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And as I sat and looked at that, God began to speak to my heart. He said, whenever the church hears the message, and hear it, it ought to, and when it hears the message, and watches the signs of time as they unfold. And they rise up and begin to walk after the bridegroom. And the Bible says, the bridegroom tarried. In other words, some of the signs that were supposed to unfold didn't unfold the way they were supposed to. And here these individuals sat as Jesus, who should have appeared, has should have already been here, and he's not come yet. I talked to a very distraught man. He's out in the world now two years ago. And he said, I don't understand it. That things that I preached and I told people that they would happen after the Lord had come has already happened if it hadn't come yet. You see what I'm trying to tell you? When you focus your attention upon His coming only and you miscount and miscount the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the urgency of the hour and the fact you need to live your life today. You get your eyes upon something else. And friend, we don't need our life on something else. The bridegroom tarried. As they tarried, they all slumbered and slept. I've seen the time and I believe us now when the church is underwent an hour, a moment of sleepiness. Times when nothing reached hardly anybody. And then the thundering voice come out of the darkness of the midnight hour. And he says, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. And emerging from that chaos of darkness was two classes of people. Part of them was foolish virgins. I would like to liken them to those who had pinned their hopes upon the signs of the time alone. And also there was wise virgins. And these were the classification of those that who realized that their life must be lived with urgency and diligence. And they knew the type of life they ought to live. And when they awoke, they trimmed their lamps and they had oil in there. And they went out to meet the bridegroom and went in with him. You see, they had something other than prophetic utterances as to when he was coming. They had a holy character and a holy life lived. And when they arose from the slumber, they had something inbred within them that didn't escape them. Hallelujah. They had something to see them the rest of the way through. The people in Noah's day perished. Did you ever... Now, I know this is an old Bible, Sunday school story that you tell kids. But did you ever wonder 
why they perished. You say, well, because they didn't believe Noah. No. That wasn't it at all. They perished because they were looking for some signs, something different, that it might rain and nothing came but the rain. Amen, Brother Hostel. That's why they perished. You see, they believed him as they knocked on the door and the rain fell and the ark started rising. They believed him and they knocked on the door and said, Noah, open the door and let us in. And Noah, I'm sure, said, I wish I could, brothers. But God had shut to the door What I'm trying to say is, if you're just going to read the signs, you might miss them. Somebody might misinform you. You might be looking for the wrong things. And you might be following the wrong prediction and prophecy, where if you'll take his promise and be ready for him whenever he comes, however he comes, and be ready to welcome him. The Bible says we must work while it is now day. For the night cometh when no man can work. An urgency. An urgency. I'll say it again, an urgency. And he wanted the second coming minister so as to instill an urgency inside of his people. Number three, he wanted it declared to instill a perseverance. Peter spoke of being armed. He spoke often of being armed with the same mind as the suffering Christ. In other words, he's saying we are to live our lives doing the will of God. We are to dedicate our lives to the will of God. Our will should be dead. His will should be alive and that alone. And you said, how is that possible? By simply believing every day at the end of all things is at hand. We know we'll struggle. We'll know we'll fight. But if we have the promise that the struggle is temporary, (laughs) hallelujah, that the victory is assured and that the reward is eternal, we can persevere and walk into the end of it all. But you see, most of us can't see beyond the temporary struggle. And if we could persevere enough to know that regardless of when he comes or how he comes, it's just a temporal struggle. It's not going to last always at all. But there's victory in all of it is assured. And the reward is an eternal reward that no man can take away from you. Number four, the second coming is declared to instill comfort. Paul, in his dissertation to the Corinthians, comforted those that were sorrowing over the deceased loved ones with a beautiful discourse of the Lord's return. And I like it. Paul calls on them to have faith. He calls on them to look past the sorrow of that day. To realize that death is in the land and everybody must die unless Jesus comes first. And he tries some way to put an emphasis on the eternal. Tries some way to instill and get us to live in the tomorrow as well as the today. And forget about yesterday. He tries some way to instill in us the comfort that the resurrection should bring. He tells him to have faith. To sorrow not as others that don't have any hope. And then he says, The Lord himself shall descend. (laughs) Woo, thank you. With a voice and a shout of an archangel, he says. And the dead in Christ will rise first. In other words, every Christian that's been planted in the grave, wherever they're at, whether in the bottom of the sea, wherever they might have been, all of those is going to come together and rise first. 
and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. And he says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And he says, comfort one another with these words. Woo, thank God for that comfort that he gives us. Woo, something inside of me turning over and over and over. Hallelujah. Comfort one another with these words. What's the comfort? The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have tears of sorrow. You follow them in a church or at a funeral home and you pass by them for the last time. And you go to the graveyard and you watch them lowered down in there and your heart melts and you're sad. And Paul knew that. He knew that. What had happened really was these Corinthians, like every generation, looked for Jesus to come in their generation and He didn't come. And their loved ones was dying and they needed to know and Paul wrote it down there and said, fine, you may have to follow them to the grave. You may have to watch them put in their cave and a stone roll there. But he tried to tell him, look, look, there's a promise. Not a prophetic utterance, not a prediction, but a promise that there will come a time in spite of the atheists and unbelievers, in spite of those that have brought confusion, there will come a time when the Lord Himself at the last trumpet will split the eastern sky and come from the womb of the sky and call His friends and His bride together to meet Him in the air and they'll spend an eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. No power of hell can rob us of that promise. No power of hell can destroy a promise. It's ours. And he says, there ought to be comfort in those words. There should be comfort in those words. And I'll say this, that was, and it still is, one of the greatest comforts the saints of God. The second coming. Hallelujah. Inscribed on my father's tombstone, are these words. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. But you see, this old boy knows what the rest of that scripture is. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. A crown of righteousness? Yes, even for those whose bones lie bleaching in the dust of the centuries of yesteryear. Even those whose flesh has rotted from their bones. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth and shall stand in the latter days upon this earth. And though the worms have to this skin, destroy this body, yet in my place shall I see God, whom mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. What a declaration this man made. What a declaration as he cried it out. And what comfort that was instilled to those believers that day. And last but not least, the second coming was to be proclaimed to instill fear. Not in the heart of the believer, but in the heart of the unbeliever. After comforting the believers, Peter issues a solemn warning to the unbeliever. As he says, the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. He also goes on to say, when they shall cry peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, and they shall not escape. They shall not escape. Wife and I watched a movie we very seldom ever watch, but we just happened to get in maybe on about the last of it. Burt Reynolds was playing in it, and they went through a whole lot of things of robbing a bank or something like that, and they escaped the helicopters and the police cars and the whole bit. 
Peter Fonda. That's right, Peter Fonda. And as they escaped the last one, they said, nothing can stop us now. About that time, they rammed the train. The car went up in total flames. And I thought, well, unless you don't escape the judgments of God. I know many people that have stood back and brazenly got by with a lot of things. Cursed God, spit on Him, mocked His church and mocked His people and went to their grave seemingly without any despair at all. They're going to wake up with the finger of God's judgment pointing in them and God saying, you won't escape. You won't escape. I watched endless predictions. I'm not a novice in this. And like I said, my father being a prophetic minister himself, I watched endless predictions come and go. Some I know by sincere people that long for his coming. They really long for his coming. Other by biblical charlatans who are little more than just uh, carnival palm readers who wanted to captivate the minds of people and show people their vast knowledge of what they was trying to do. But I'll say this in closing, God spares, spares future predictions and lead us into the refreshing fountains of the waters of his promise of what he says. The church, church doesn't need any headlines to give it an assurance of his return. The church, true church, is content to hold to God's word that says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. And we need only... We need only to proclaim His second coming as a promise. And if we'll do that, I believe the living church of God will forever shout, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. When the appointed time comes, when you're ready, Father, I've been diligent in your ministry and in your vineyard. I've lived my life. I've developed the holy character. And if you want to come tomorrow, God, I'm ready for you. And if you want to wait for years from now, and should this body grow old and I go to the grave, I'm going to go there ready to come out of it on the other side and meet you at your coming. The Bible says at the last trump. I won't go into the great details of what the trumpets meant and the signs of it, but they had certain trumpets for a certain calling together. One trumpet would call together the priest. And another trumpet would be just to call together the congregation. But if they wanted to call together the complete congregation of Israel, priest and congregation alike, they blew both trumpets. And I believe when they said the last trumpet, he's not going to just blow one. He's going to blow both of them because it's calling. He's calling the whole congregation those that are long since dead. Those that are living now together. And after the, after the blowing of the last of the two trumpets, it signifies the calling of the whole congregation of Israel. Coming out of the grave. Those which are alive. Meeting together. Hallelujah. And being changed. <laughs> Hallelujah. From mortal into immortality. And then being with the Lord forever. The last. Oh, I'd like to hear it. I'd like to be here. I don't know if I will or not. Some strange reason, I think, like everybody else, I think of things progress the way they're progressing. I could be. But you know, while the bridegroom tarried, there's a great lesson. Because things come together real fast. And everybody gets excited. And he cares. There's other things there to happen, but they're not happening. And he cares. The excitement then is gone. <laughs> you know, new revelations, you, you strive for them, they're not there. You're on hold. Nobody can make a name for himself being on hold. And finally, the zeal goes. Those that were one time wide eyed and awake and jealous of the coming of the Lord, now knowing the people you see they didn't develop what God wanted them to develop how about you today should Jesus come have you been diligent 
Have you developed a righteous character? Are you growing? Are you putting away the childish things and becoming adults? Are you getting tired of just pablum and milk? Would you need, need some meat? Could you chew it? Do you have any teeth? How many have you growing? You see, I will go out and be concerned about the world. That's what the second coming is all about. It's to make people aware that he's going to come. And I'm going to say it again. And I know I probably crossed theology. I'm going to have it again now. But I want you to watch out. And don't, don't say you haven't been here. And I said I'm not as dumb as I look. If I was, I'd be in trouble. But when somebody lifts out the second coming out of the tent of the principles of faith and sets it out here by itself and majors on that alone, watch out. It's not made for that. The same way if somebody kicks out healing, which is an integral part of the faith, but when they pick that out of there and set it out here and major on that alone, watch out. And when they take the prosperity scriptures of the Bible and lift them out and major on that alone, watch out. They're all a part of it. But the major, I'm going to say again, the major is repentance and baptism and the Holy Ghost and growth and an urgency to develop a Christ-like character. And once we get that, the rest of it has its place. We'll not misconstrue anything that's ever said. Shall we stop?